in your Bibles tonight to the book of Philippians chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring one to you so you can follow along tonight in our Bible study. The rear corner of the building is still dark. I see people straining. Yes, all right. (laughs) Philippians chapter 3. Chapter 1. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi and he talked to them about the place of trials and tribulation in the life of a Christian. That which God designs and accomplishes through the trials that we face. In chapter 2, he talked to them about unity in the church through humility. And if you weren't here, I suggest maybe pick up the CD as it's very applicable to our church in the season that we are in. And as we cross into chapter 3 tonight, Paul talks to them and talks to us. He gives us the warning of the watchman. Now, as we begin chapter 3, we find ourselves exactly halfway through this epistle to the Philippians. And the way that Paul begins the second half of this letter is very similar to the way that most preachers begin the second half of their sermons. You see the word there, finally. So that's a biblical thing for a preacher to halfway through his sermon say, we're drawing closer to a close, you know, finally, uh, and yet he's only halfway there. We're no different than Paul. We're just following in his footsteps. But as he begins, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, thus far, he's talked to them about tribulation and trials that are coming at them from the outside. Persecution from those there in the city and the trials and troubles that are coming upon them daily in their personal lives. The tribulations that are coming at them from without. And then he talked to them about factions and friction that was taking place within, within the church. There was schisms, there were divisions, there were problems there in the church. So tribulation from without, divisions and factions from within. And yet now, in light of all of that, even though there's tribulation outwardly, friction inwardly, he brings it right back to what it's all about as he begins chapter 3. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And it's such a beautiful thing, isn't it? This Christian life that we're in, that though things can be hitting us from the outside and things can be going on from the inside and it seems like from every angle of life there's pressure, there's problems, but yet we singularly, apart from everybody else in the world, have the ability to rejoice. Not in our circumstances, because circumstances will never allow rejoicing. But rather we rejoice in the salvation that we've received. The gift that's been given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, no matter what the circumstances are outwardly or inwardly in our fellowship or in our homes, in our families or within us personally, we have the ability, the privilege and really even the command to rejoice. Because what we've been given through Christ far exceeds and overreaches all of the other problems and things that we deal with. And so for the Christian, circumstances are never the ruler of our rejoicing, but rather our lives belong to Christ, and He is in control of all things, and He only does that which is good. So the problems that we face, the trials that we're in the midst of, the tribulation, the anguish, even the little schisms and things that, that, that are just inconvenient within our lives, he's in control of all of it because he's working it all together for a purpose as he brings forth that which he desires in and through our lives. And so Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he sets them up for a series of warnings that he apparently had given to them while he was with them. 
he, he's going to repeat himself here, and he, repeat, he says, he says, For me, to write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but rather for you it is safe. And so a precursor to a warning that he's about to extend to them as a fellowship, as a church, and as individuals. And it's so important for a preacher or a pastor or someone in spiritual leadership, not just to feed the flock, but also to warn the flock. That would be the job of a shepherd. And that's what pastor or, or you know, that's what it means. It's a, a shepherd. And Paul, being the shepherd of this flock, of this church, he's going to extend to them a warning. And, and I like what he says here because he says, for me to write the same things to you, and the word there for same in the, in the Greek language, the definition of the word is repeated. And what he's saying to them is basically is, I'm going to repeat myself. I'm going to tell you something that you've already heard. Now, I know that's somewhere written on some wall in some seminary that a preacher is never to repeat himself. But yet the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, Paul says, as he goes on from there, he says, to write the repeated things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous. And again, the, the language there doesn't do justice to the word, because the word grievous is actually translated lazy or slothful. So what Paul is saying, he said, I'm going to repeat myself, but my repetition is not out of sloth. I'm not being lazy. It isn't that I didn't study or put my homework or my prayer time into this message. I realize, Paul saying, that I'm repeating myself, but I'm doing it because you need it. He says, it is safe for you that I repeat myself. And there is a trend among preachers today, and I think it's a dangerous thing. It's a very slippery slope. For a preacher or a pastor or a Bible teacher to feel the need to be innovative, to be creative, to invent something new and, and not ever to repeat anything, but to be on the cutting edge of creativity in their message and in their presentation. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, when it's fitting. But to have that mentality is that there always has to be something new or a different twist on the message in some way to make it fresh. It has two negative outcomes. Number one, it leads congregations astray. Because the more you have to innovate and make things new, the more you have to tweak truths, and the more you tweak truths, the less true they become. Perhaps you've heard the adage before that if it's new, it isn't true. And if it's true, it isn't new. And there's truth in that. It isn't, you know, our job as preachers is not to be creative and inventive and to be innovative, but rather it's to simply proclaim the message and to explain it with reason and apply it as it is, as it is written. I love what Peter says, the Apostle Peter, right before he goes to heaven. It's the last message that he gives. It's Second Peter, and it's in chapter 1. Uh, verse 12, Peter writes this. He says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. You already know, Peter says, but yet I'm going to tell you again. Yea, I think it necessary, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, to remind you. Knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, he's speaking of his body, his death, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. And so the last message that Peter gave was a repeat. He's saying, I'm telling you things that you already know. And it's so important for us in the Christian life. I, I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded. You know, my wife, before I leave the house in the morning, she'll say, hey, could you pick up? And I say, ah, ah, text me at 345. Because as soon as you say it, it's water under the bridge. It's gone, you know. And, and I don't know if that happens to you, but we need to be reminded. And it isn't enough for us to hear the truths of Scripture once and then never to revisit those things again because, well, we need to hear something that we've never heard before. No, no, no. The Bible, Paul here, he's saying it is important, it's imperative that I repeat myself for your safety. 
And so Paul giving them three bewares as we look back in Philippians now, three warnings, three things that they're to be on the lookout for as a congregation in verse 2. He says, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Beware, beware, beware. Of dogs, of evil workers, and of the concision. The first there, of course, dogs. Now, he is not talking about Fido. It's not the family pet that Paul is concerned about being a shipwrecking agent for the church there in Philippi. It's not Fido, the family pet, but rather it's the friends that the people there in Philippi may be associating with. Not Fido, but friends. And there are some people, some people that we might associate that are very much like dogs. What do you mean? They have a good heart. They're very likable. They're very easy to be around. They're non-pretentious. They're trainable. And everything about them, we're attracted. We say, well, this is man's best friend. This is just a, a person that I can let my hair down around. I can be in their presence and everything is just easy. And, and, and outwardly, everything about them is classy and right and selflessly, you know, seemingly so. The problem is that inwardly, a dog is naturally attracted to that which is vile and detestable. The scriptural mark of a dog, or the scriptural description of what Paul is talking about here when he compares certain people to dogs, is that they have an appetite for anything. We read of Jesus when he talks about the rich man and Lazarus, how the dogs came and they licked the wounds of Lazarus. And and that's a disgusting picture that we have in our mind. But the idea there is that a dog, hey, if it has a flavor, I'll eat it. I'll partake of it. As long as it isn't, you know, air, I'm in, you know. The other time that this word dog is used is by the Apostle Peter in his epistle when he says, as it is written, the dog returns to its vomit. And that's an even more disgusting picture. And if you've ever had a dog and had the privilege of seeing that happen, then you don't need me to explain to you what that looks like, you know. But, but in other words, they have an appetite for anything, even if it's vile and if it's detestable. And whenever the Bible talks about a dog, it always refers to them in the context that they are unconverted. They're unsaved. They're unregenerate. Revelation chapter 22, when it talks about the new Jerusalem, it says, for without, outside the city, the first thing it says there are dogs. And Paul is telling them, beware of dogs. Now, the reason for the warning is that sometimes, at least in outward actions or in initial assessment, someone who is really a dog might seem to us to be a better person than someone who is saved. It's interesting. They might be more generous. They might be nicer. They might be more civilized or more professional or or even seemingly more concerned for us than our brothers and sisters in the church. But because they're unconverted, their diet consists of vileness. They partake in that which is vile. And it provides an avenue for the flesh and the devil to bring a child of God into behavioral compromise. Because when we see someone who outwardly almost seems Christ-like, but yet in their moral behavior and in their their, their disciplines, they're loose and they're, they'll, they'll feed on anything, they'll partake of anything, then it causes Satan to whisper in our ear and say, see, look, they're acting more saved than most of the people you know. And, and they do this and it doesn't affect them. And so it won't harm you either. You could partake of these things. You could behave this way. And it's a dangerous thing. And Paul recognized that there was a danger of the Philippian church falling into this thing of becoming secularized by being influenced by good people that partake of vile things. I talk to people quite frequently, and, and you know they'll talk to me about someone that they're dating 
or someone that they're interested in, both sides, male and female, and, and they'll describe and say, he's so good, or she's, so, she's got such a good heart, and they would give someone the shirt off their back. They're so selfless. They would do anything for anybody, and, and, and you know, they're given the descriptions, and I'll always say, well, are they saved? And quite often, I hear this not infrequently, people will respond by saying, I think so, but they just don't know it yet. And I get that a lot. You know, I think they are. They just don't know it yet. They, they maybe don't say Jesus, but, but he's really living inside of them. It's evident by the way that they behave, by the way that they treat me in this. No, no, listen, it's, it's not that. It isn't that they're saved and they don't know it yet. It's what the Bible calls a dog. And they'll lead you astray. Now, the warning that Paul is giving to them is not that they're to insulate themselves and not interact with anybody else other than Christians. That's not what Paul is saying. But rather, very clearly, he's saying, beware. Do you know what beware means? It's two words put together. Be aware. Smash their heads together. You get beware. And, and that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, understand that there are unregenerate, unsaved people whose personality and even their outward behaviors have the ability to deceive you into thinking they're Christians. And they're not. And the standard for what makes someone saved is in the scripture. It's the word of God. Have they been born again? Are they blood bought? Are they friends of the cross? Paul's going to talk more about that as we come to the end of the chapter. The second warning is towards evil workers. Now just as dogs can do damage in subtle ways... To the church, evil workers can do damage in not so subtle ways. And, and, and this speaks of those that apply directed effort to impose evil and to oppose righteousness. And Paul is saying, don't forget that there are people in this world that oppose righteousness. It isn't just that they're indifferent or ignorant, what we would call an agnostic, but that they are actually in the business of opposing the doctrine and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to watch out and be careful. Jesus said to us, he said that we're to be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. When the Apostle Paul was preaching there in the city, in the book of Acts, he's preaching and there were people that were there in the crowd that were playing the part of attentive listeners, but they were waiting. They were waiting as Paul preached and they were waiting until they heard a single word. And once they heard that word, Gentile, they erupted the crowd and they started a riot and the result was a beating that Paul had to endure, you know, in trouble there in the city. Because there were evil workers that were lying in wait, seeking to trip up and interrupt the work that God was doing there in their midst. And there are people that do that in the church of Jesus Christ today. There are people that come into congregations and they wait until a message is given on the topic of homosexuality. Or where the Bible talks about correcting a child, you know, using discipline, you know, or something. Or, you know, where a, a church will give a political innuendo in their message and, 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 you know, kind of subtly give endorsement to a political candidate. And there are people that will take those things and use them to put a, a stumbling stone in the work of God in a particular area. And Paul is saying, watch out. There are people that you will never know by their outward appearance, but they are actually set to oppose the work of God in your midst. Beware, Paul says. And then number three, he says, beware of the concision. And here, Paul is talking about his old friends, the Judaizers. And you remember, if you were with us as we went through Galatians, who the Judaizers were. There was a group of people that were following Paul from city to city, and everywhere that Paul would plant a church and lead people to Christ, the Judaizers would come in after Paul, and they would say and suggest to the people in that city, yes, listen, what Paul said is good, but it's not enough. It's not enough for you to just trust Christ for your salvation. 
The blood in the cross is good. It's an ingredient, but you must also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses if you want to be saved. They were the Judaizers, and they were polluting, corrupting, they were negating the power and the message of the gospel that was being preached by Paul by telling the Christians that it wasn't grace that saved them, but it was grace plus their spiritual ability and success in keeping the law and in performing the rituals. Now, we know that Paul is speaking of the Judaizers when he talks about the concision because of what he says in verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision. And there's a play on words there, the concision and the circumcision. Now, the word concision that Paul uses in verse 2 in his warning The word is actually mutilators. And if you're using a new King James, uh, you might actually have that word there and and not uh, concision. You might have beware of the mutilators. Why does he use the word mutilators? Because this group of people that Paul is speaking of, warning the church about, is a group of people that teach that religious they, they teach religious observance that is void of any real spiritual substance. Hang with me here. In the Old Testament, the rite of circumcision that was given to Abraham and that was a sign of the covenant, it was done under the law and it was a sign of something that was to take place inwardly in the lives of God's people. It was symbolic of a cutting away of the flesh, not living after the flesh, not indulging in the flesh, but they were to be a spiritual people. And that was something that was take take place within their lives, in their hearts. And the rite of circumcision was an outward sign of an inward spiritual work. Now, to be circumcised, but yet not have the spiritual correlation at work within your life, was dead. It was nothing more than a mutilation of the flesh. Because if you were circumcised physically but yet you didn't have the corresponding experience spiritually, then all you did was mutilate your body. You accomplished nothing else. You didn't score points with God. He isn't in heaven going, all right, were they, oh, yes, they were circumcised? Okay, they're in. It it, it didn't work like that. It was an outward sign of an inward move of God. And so to just have the sign and not have the move of God was mutilation. And that's why Paul uses that word. He says it's the mutilation. It's just, it's the concision. It's, it's an outward work, but it's void of any real spiritual substance. In the New Testament, we baptize. And again, baptism is an outward sign of an inward conversion. When we come to Christ, we are saying, I am crucified with Christ I'm identifying with him. I've been bought by his blood. I'm being unified with him. And my old self, my old nature is dying, nailed to the cross with him. And it's coming back to life in the power of his resurrection. I'm now born again. I'm in Christ. His spirit lives within me. There's a conversion that takes place. And following that conversion, we are told to be baptized We go under the water and it's a symbol, a sign of the death that we died on the cross with Christ. And when we come up out of the water, it's a sign of resurrection, that we're living the resurrected life in the power of the Spirit of Christ. It's an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. But if we do the outward demonstration, and yet we haven't had the inward transformation then we might as well have gone to the carnival and sat in a dunk tank. You know, and had someone throw the baseball and hit the target and, you know, oh, you got me. And you go under the water because that's about all it's worth. Baptism, apart from having the experience of conversion of Christ coming into a person's life, it's dead. It's nothing. It means nothing. It's just being dunked. And so Paul is saying that beware of the concision. Beware of those that would seek to impose religious rituals upon you and say that those are the things that give you merit before God rather than the true spiritual experience to which the sign gives testimony, not the other way around. 
The Judaizers were saying that you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And circumcision was Old Testament law. It was contrary to New Testament grace. And salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. When he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished to Telestai. His blood being spilled paid the price for your sin and my sin in completion. And there is nothing that can be added to that. Now, for the Judaizers to come in and say, you must be circumcised and keep the law, it is to say that it wasn't enough what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so damning is that message, is that compromise, that if a person embraces that doctrine, they, Paul says to the Galatians, Christ is dead in vain. You have left your salvation. You've perverted the gospel of Christ to the point where Paul says, I fear that you're not even saved because the two things cannot be mixed. You are either saved by the law, that is, you better keep the law perfectly every day of your life and never sin, or you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ who kept the law perfectly and died in your place. You choose. You either save yourself through the law by your works or you're saved by grace through faith in what Jesus did for you. It is not and cannot be a combination of the two. It is one or the other. And thus Paul gives them warning. He says, beware of this. And then he says that we are the circumcision in verse 3. For we are the circumcision. And then he gives three marks of the true child of God. He says, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. The first mark of the true child of God is that we worship God in the spirit. Now he uses the word spirit there in contrast to what we would call the flesh. The flesh always speaks of our efforts and what we do, the rituals, the rites, circumcision, and the law, the flesh, you know. The Spirit speaks about what happens when a person is born again. The Spirit of God moves inside, and we're saved by grace through faith. And that's, that is synonymous with what Paul means when he says that we worship God in the Spirit. It isn't by our works of the flesh that we are saved, but it's by His Spirit. Romans 8, 1 and 2, it says that the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the flesh could not do, and that it was weak through sin, Christ, by His Spirit, moving into our lives, He has saved us by His grace. And so the first mark of the true child of God is that we worship God in the Spirit, having no confidence in what we have done, but completely resting upon what he has done on our behalf, worshiping God in the spirit. The second thing he says, the, true, the mark of the true child of God, is that we rejoice in Jesus Christ. And in the context of what he's saying, he means that it, it, it's what he has done for us, not in our own merit, our own ability. We don't rejoice in our religious nature. We don't rejoice in our works of righteousness. We don't rejoice in how good we are to keep the commands and the laws of God. But rather we rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. Our joy and our salvation is that he purchased it completely. And so we rejoice in our salvation through Christ, apart from the works of the law. And then the third thing that he says, the third mark, is that we have no confidence in the flesh. Now, the word confidence there in the Greek language, it means assurance or persuasion. And that means that we have no assurance of our salvation based upon what we can produce in our flesh. How many of you have ever tried to please God through your flesh, through your works and what you've done? I remember when I first got married, you know, we, we, were, we loved the Lord. He was just introducing himself into our lives. And, and we loved his word, and we were part of a healthy church, and God was really just growing us. There was, such a, a, there was just such a presence of the Lord in our lives early in our marriage. And I remember when we first got married, we moved in together in our first apartment there, and I remember I made a pact 
don't make a pact. Well, maybe you need to. You know, you learn from those things. But, but I made a pact. I said, God, you've been so good. I am going to get up every morning for the rest of my life at 5 a.m. and just pray from 5 to 6. Do you know how long that lasted? About four days. Maybe three. I don't know. It, it, didn't, it didn't go very far. But you, th- that was the flesh. Oh, God, I am going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to show you how strong I can be. And it didn't work. And you know what happens when it doesn't work? Is that then, oh, God, you must be so disappointed. Now I can't pray. And so for the four days that I got up and prayed, it resulted in two weeks where I didn't utter a word to God. Because I'm not worthy. I tried and I failed. I couldn't do it. And the whole thing. And what a joy it was. And it probably was a number of years later that I finally realized, wow, Lord, you love me because of what you did. You see me as complete and perfect because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That on the first day you saved me, you were as pleased with me as you will be on the day that I pass from this earth. And everything that I've done between now and then means nothing next to the blood of Christ that you've, you've provided for me. And see, Paul is saying that our confidence before him, our assurance or the persuasion that we have, the conviction that he loves me, has nothing to do with my flesh and what I can do for God. But it's completely and totally upon what he has done for me. I rejoice in Jesus Christ. The circumcision, on the other hand, they would rejoice in their rituals. They would rejoice in what they could produce, what they were, you see. Now, just in case we might need an example of what it looks like to try to please God in our flesh, Paul uses himself as an example. Now, listen, I just gave you an example of what I did. That's nothing compared to what Paul did. What did it look like for Paul to serve Christ in the flesh? He gives us an example right here in verse 4. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. In other words, I might have assurance or persuasion of salvation through my flesh. If any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, Paul says, I guarantee you, I have more. I have more of a reason to believe that I was pleasing God through my works. And then he gives to us seven things that he had going for him in, in, the, in the chronicles of heaven. He tells us, first of all, in verse 5, that he was circumcised the eighth day. Perfectly according to the law. It was on the eighth day that circumcision was to take place. And Paul had the papers to prove it. He could stand before God in heaven and he could say, See, eighth day, right here. I was circumcised the eighth day. He says, number two, that he was of the stock of Israel. He wasn't a proselyte. He wasn't a Gentile that converted to Judaism, but he had Abraham's genes in his veins, in his body. He was a purebred Jew from Israel. Number three, he says, from the tribe of Benjamin. That he had pedigree, and it was of a significant honor to be from the tribe of Benjamin, because Benjamin was esteemed as the tribe that produced Israel with its first king, King Saul. Even though he was a flop, he was still the first. And so he, he, he was proud of that. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. He goes on to say, number four, that he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And translated, what that literally means is that he was a shepherd of shepherds. The Hebrews were shepherds. I was a shepherd of shepherds. There were shepherds, but I was the shepherd of the shepherds. I was over them. And then he explains, a Pharisee. As touching the law, a Pharisee. The highest from among the scribes and the scholars, if they met the righteousness and the conditions that were put before them, they would be selected into this group of what were known as the Pharisees, the pastors, if you would, in those days. And Paul says, I was a Pharisee. I made it into the realm and rank of that which would actually mean something to the people of God. And then he says, not just any Pharisee, but zealous concerning zeal, persecuting the church. I made it my, my 
ambition and the distinction of my career that I was going to preserve Judaism to its fullest extent and I would persecute anyone that would seek to oppose. Concerning zeal, I was a persecutor of the church, the great enemy of the Jewish faith in his eyes at the time. And then finally, he says, and concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. That is, by all observable standards of what anyone would try to say to Paul or accuse Paul of, they could find nothing. Because concerning that righteousness that came by the law, Paul was blameless. You could follow him around. You could put surveillance cameras in his house. You could set spies to watch everything that he does. And they would find nothing that they could lay accusation against him and say that you've broken or transgressed the law of God in any way. And he tells us in verse 7 that these things were gained to him. That all seven of these things were things that were prized by him. He held them in his mind and they were his confidence. If you were to say to Paul, prior to his coming to Christ, how do you know you're saved? He would list these seven things. He would say, I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, a a shepherd of the shepherds, a Pharisee, zealous persecuting the church, and concerning the righteousness that's in the law, blameless. And that was his badge. And he would say, I am definitely going to heaven. And he held those things up. And you know what? If you had all of those things, they would be a gain to you. You would have a very decorated reputation. Certainly Saul of Tarsus was known around Jerusalem as a man of great honor. A great reputation. It would produce for you an impeccable resume. A list of things that would get you a job in any synagogue or any Jewish seminary of the day. Anywhere. With a resume like that. And not only those things, but it would also provide you, if you were Saul, if you were Paul. It would provide you with a good excuse for a guilty conscience. If there was ever a day where there was guilt internally over something that you did or something in your past that resume that list of things that he had going for him would be a great way for him to ease his conscience and just simply look around at everybody else and say i am light years ahead of anybody else in the things of god and no one can touch my credentials in spiritual things and all of these things that paul says about himself are absolutely true He could boast of any of these things with absolute truth. And nobody could challenge any of them. But what this doesn't tell us is that underneath all of this decoration and this impeccable resume that Paul had, that those things could not change the darkened condition of his heart. How do we know? Well, on the day of Paul's conversion which was long after he had all of these things going for him, listen to what it says about Paul as we see a character sketch of him on the day that Jesus met him. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says that Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, speaking of Christians whether they were men or women, that he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Did you hear what it says about Saul, even though he had all of these things going for him? It says that Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and curses against the disciples of the Lord. Meaning, though outwardly he could boast of a religious system and religious attainments, and decorated accolades in the things of God, yet inwardly those things were unable to change his inward nature. He would breathe in fresh, clean air, and out would come slaughter and threatenings against the disciples. Oh, I hate those Christians. I'm going to come and slaughter and kill them, you know. Oh, I can't wait to wring their neck, what they're doing to my conscience. And And in would go this clean air, but out would come this vile wretchedness because what he was on the inside could not be changed by all of the things that he had on the outside. His religion could not change him. In fact, he confesses 
In Romans, when he's talking about his conversion to the Roman church, he says that the law was to him a comfort because he was such a good keeper of it until he reached one. One law. He could not worship idols. He could keep the Sabbath. He could honor his parents. He never stole. He never killed anyone. He kept all of those laws. But there was one law that Paul says would never leave me alone. Thou shalt not covet. Because he says, coveting, I can do without anybody else knowing it. Coveting happens in the secret place. Coveting happens without anybody else knowing it. And he says that I could go through all nine and I could justify myself, but I could never beat coveting. And yet I could maintain all of my religion and everybody thought that everything in my life was okay because I kept those things outwardly. But yet the coveting that was in me, even to the point where when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus there in Acts chapter 9, Jesus says to Paul, he says, Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? Your conscience is bothering you, isn't it, Paul? Because Jesus knew what was going on internally and none of the religion that Paul had, none of the circumcision, none of the rituals, none of the sacraments, none of the rites, none of that could save him. And he knew it. He says, if anyone can boast having confidence in the flesh, I have more reason to have confidence in the flesh because of these things that were going on in my life. Now, all of that what Paul calls the confidence in the flesh, the seven things upon his resume, all of that speaks of human effort. Paul attained all of those things by his efforts. Now, he contrasts all of that. Now, take the things that we just looked at in verses 4, 5, and 6, and he contrasts that now with everything that he got when he came to Christ. And notice that they are distinct. It wasn't that Jesus was added to this list of credentials. There is a distinction, a separation. Notice in verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. In other words, it isn't in addition to what I had, I added Jesus Christ, but rather... I had to trade those things in. I had to let go of all that I had previously, all of my religious experience and spiritual credentials. I let it go so that I might gain Christ. What things were gained to me, those I reckoned as loss for Christ in exchange. In other words, in order to gain Christ, I had to lose all of those other things. I couldn't keep both. How many people here have ever done your own taxes? I don't want to give an illustration if no one's going to understand it. Okay, you're not going to. You know the itemized deduction versus the standard deduction? You know, if, you, if you've done taxes, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you know, don't worry. Just take a 30-second nap. You know, you can't have both, right? You know, if you itemize your deductions, you don't get the standard deduction. If you take the standard, you don't get to itemize. And so you figure out which one's more, and you take that one, right? Well, Paul's list of seven things, that was itemized. Oh, I got this before God, I got this before God, I got this before God, I got this before God. Itemized deductions. Standard deduction, Christ. Salvation, free gift, paid in full, you're in favor with God, you have it all, just pick this side. And Paul looks at his list over here and he says, man, I worked hard for that. I really kept good records, I saved every receipt. I'm really tempted to take this side just so they see how diligent I was. Nah, and he, and he throws it away. Because you can't have both. You're either saved by your works and your efforts and what you produce in your flesh, or you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. One or the other. And Paul says, whatever things were gained to me in my religious life beforehand, I count it as loss that I may win Christ. I'll take Christ, he says. And he gives us three things that he reckoned here in verses 7 and 8. The word counted, if you see it there in the King James, it means reckoned. And that means that he just, in his mind, he put it in a category. Reckoning means that this is here, and this is, I'm going to reckon it this. And so three things he reckons. Here they are. He says, what things were gained to me, those I reckoned loss for Christ. So the first thing he reckons as loss was his old life. <coughs> he took his old life, and he just says, loss. Garbage. I'm putting this in the shredder. 
It's worthless. Then in verse 8, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I reckon all things but loss. Not only his old life, but also the ideal life. In other words, Paul says, Okay, here I have in my one hand everything that my life consisted of prior to coming to Christ. And he says, when I put it in the balance and then put Christ on the other side, Christ wins. Christ is better. It's a greater treasure. So I count this as loss. Then he takes it one step further and he says, yea, I count all things but loss. And here's what that means. It means you take the same scale, but this time you put everything you could ever want or anything that ever existed and you put it on this side of the scale. That means you are the owner of the entire universe. You can be God, anything. He says all things. You put whatever you want on this side of the scale, and on this side we're going to put Christ just to see which one's more valuable. And guess who wins the second time? Christ. He says, I count my old life, reckon it nothing. I take everything, all things. I put it on that scale, and he says, I count it as lost. Why? Look with me there again. He says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That word excellency, it's another one of those things where you take two words and you smash their heads together, but the root word is excel. It means that Jesus Christ excels. There's an excel in C to who he is and what he's done and what he can produce in the life of someone who lets him in. And he says, for whom, for Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things. Now think about what that was like for Paul, because if you take his resume, everything that he had going for him, right? And think about what it would cost for him to trade it in for Christ. A little bit of suffering, right? What would Paul's family say that raised him in a Jewish religious home? That saw him bar mitzvah and, you know, took him through Hebrew school and made sure that he was diligently at synagogue each Sabbath. And, and, and what would his family say at the point when he comes to Christ? What would his peers say as he would take off the high hat of the Pharisee and begin to wear the badge of Christ and take up the cross within his life? What would his peers say? What would his friends say? What would his neighbors say? What would all of Jerusalem, who's watching this man Paul, become a rising star in the things of Judaism, what would they say? As this man says, I'm willing to trade all of it in that I might simply know Jesus Christ personally. He says, I suffered the loss of all things. But do you know what he says about that? He says, all of that, I count it as, and look at the screen, not at your Bible, because the King James has it right. I count it as Dung. Do you know what dung is? If you've ever been around a farm, you know what dung is. Fertilizer. What comes out the backside of a cow, you know, dung. Think about it. It's interesting. I talk to a lot of Christians that celebrate the old life. Oh, and a little sparkle comes into their eye when they begin to think about what their life was like before they came to Christ. Oh, what it was like. Man, those were some times, weren't they, they'll say. Not Paul. He looked at everything in his old life and he compared it to what he had in Christ and he said, it is dung. And think about what he was calling dung. He was a religious man. He was a good man. He said, dung. What would Paul say about the things in our past that we left behind? If a religious life was dung, what would he say about our past? What would he say about mine? What would God say? Yet the amazing thing is that God didn't come to save just religious people like Paul. He came to save you and I. And all of the darkness of what we were, all of the refuse, all of the filth of our past, all of what's in our mind, the pictures and the images that will be there forever, that never leave. And yet he looks at each one of those things and he willingly takes them upon himself. and says, I'm willing to forgive each of those sins and give myself to you completely. What a treasure. Paul says, I count it as dung that I may win Christ. Well, what did Paul get? What did Paul get by exchanging all that he was 
just to have Jesus Christ. First of all, he got redemption. Notice there with me at verse 9. It says, and be found in him. To be found in him. It speaks of two things. It speaks, first of all, of our condition. See, prior to coming to Christ, where were we? We were lost, weren't we? What were you? I know I was lost. I was alienated from the life of God. I was in darkness. I was spiritually blind, and my condition was labeled as lost. But when I came to Christ, it changed. It went from being lost to being found. I was found in Christ. I was found by Christ. He found me. I said I found God to my friends. I was wrong. I didn't find God. He found me. And Paul says, what I had in religion was great. It worked real well in the world, but I was lost. But when I came to Christ, I was found. It speaks of our condition. It also speaks of our experience. Do you remember what it was like before you knew Jesus Christ to lay your head on the pillow at night? Do you remember the things that went through your mind, through your head? Not the dark things, but the the sober things. What, What is this all about? Why, why do I exist? Why is this world here? What's the point of all of it? Is there a God? If there's a God, who is he? And what does he want from my life? How can I protect myself from all of these crazy things that are going on around me and uh, going on in this world? The things that went through your mind. But the moment you were found in Christ, you rest your head on the pillow at night and you, you can smile and you say, I know. I understand what truth is. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. I know what's going on in the world. I know who's in control of my life. And you rest. And and I remember, I remember realizing the weight of this. And I literally was laying there 11 o'clock at night in a room by myself. and, And I remember just saying the words. I just said, Lord, I trust you. And and I'm telling you, I don't mean to sound mystical, but when I said those words, I literally felt like someone took a duffel bag off the bed. You know how like the bed has springs, you know? It wasn't like levitation, but it was just like someone took a hundred pound weight and lifted it off the bed and it released tension off the springs a little bit. And I was like, whoa, what was that? Because, and and though I felt that, I literally felt that, that's what was taking place in my life, being found in Christ. He was taking the weight of the world off my shoulders. He's real. He's alive. Paul says, I was found. He goes on to say, to be found in him. And then the second thing he says is that he was given total and complete forgiveness of sins. He says, to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith. That is, what he gave me when I came to him was absolute righteousness. Picture this for one minute. Here's Jesus, and he's on heaven's loading dock. And there he is standing in white robe with clipboard in hand. And he says, okay, back it in. And all of a sudden, a semi-truck appears, and you hear the reverse beacon. Beep, beep, beep. And and you, you look at the side, and you see your name there. And you say, well, what's this? And he says, well, this is your sin. And you go, ooh. And and, and the load looks heavy. There's weight on those springs. You know, and the truck backs up to the loading dock. And one by one, and crate by crate, and pallet after pallet, your sins are removed from the truck as Jesus just looks at each one and says, all right, I'll I'll take that one. I'll bear that one. I'll, I'll pay for the price of that one. I'll do this. And then finally, is there anything left? No, the truck is empty. And he says, all right, get this truck out of here. And you're sweating, you're breathing heavy. You're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. And all of a sudden, you hear another reverse beacon. Beep, beep. And you look, it's the second truck, you know. And after about the fifth truck, Jesus has gone through about 40 clipboards. You know, there's just a pile of clipboards and things are being checked off and checked off and checked off. And you go, oh my goodness. And he's going, yeah, I'll pay for this. I'll, yeah, I'll pay for that one. Uh, I'm covered. Yep. That, oh, that thought? Mm-hmm. Oh, that hatred? Oh, go, yep. Covered. The bitterness? Yep. Oh, drug use? Yeah, got it. Mm, lust? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Indulgent? Yeah. Oh, prostitute. Okay, got it. And, and he just goes through the list. One by one, takes every single thing. And then it's all over, and he says, all right, here's what I'm going to give you now. This is what you had. And you should see a room full of clipboards, you know. And then he reaches over, and he takes out of his pocket, and he pulls out a piece of paper, and he opens it up, 
And he unfolds it, and it's just an eight by, by eight and a half by 11, and he hands it to you. And he says, here you go. And you look at it, and you say, it's a blank piece of paper. And he says, yeah, that's right. But, the, but what, what is this? Oh, this is your list of sins now. Hand this in when you, get, when you die, because this is what's laid to your account. I paid for all of this. I'm going to trade you. I'm going to give you my rap sheet, and I'm going to take yours. And so you, you just leave this with me, and you take this, this. And Paul is saying, this is what I gained when I came to Christ. Now think about what Saul could itemize in his list previously of all of his good works, ignoring the semi-truckloads of sin that were still at work within his heart. And then he says, I came to Christ and he gave me perfect righteousness. Not which is by the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now we're about a quarter of the way through this Bible study, so I'll say finally. (laughs) I pray tonight as we close that you recognize what Jesus Christ has done for you. And that your love for him ceases to be what you're going to get from him. And begins to be who he is to you. You're here tonight, and if you put your faith in Christ, then you belong to Christ. But that doesn't mean that you came to Christ, or that you stand in Christ for the right reason. You might be here tonight saying, God, what are you going to give me? What are you going to do? When are you going to work this out? When is this going to turn around? When is... and, and, and you are serving God because of what he will do for you. I pray in Jesus' name that you would recognize and realize that what he's done for you is worthy of a love that is to his person, not to his power or what he will do for you. That is our rejoicing, church. The reason we rejoice in Jesus Christ is not because of what he's going to do for us, but because of what he did. And if you're here tonight and you've never made that transaction, maybe your head hits the pillow at night and you still wonder and say, what is this all about anyway? God, are you really real? Maybe you're resting upon your morality or the strength of your conscience, or your religious devotion, or your attendance in church, as things that you hope, God, oh please, see that I was in church when you judge me. Listen, that can't save you. But Jesus Christ hung on a cross. He lived an absolutely sinless life. And he was bled out on barren ground. And he absorbed the wrath of God and the punishment and penalty for every sin that has ever been committed in your life and in mine. And he stands before you tonight and he says, if you will call on my name, I will willingly pay the price for every sin. And I will declare your name to be absolutely righteous. And that is the gift of God by grace through Jesus Christ. And so Paul warns and he says, beware of the concision." May God give us wisdom, both as a church and for those of us here tonight that have not yet come to Christ. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your gift. We thank you for what this reveals to us tonight as we consider and ponder what is being said. Oh Lord, may your love so penetrate our hearts and our minds that our devotion wouldn't be shallow, that our rejoicing would not be in circumstance, and that our lives would not be found in the things that we possess or in what we are or what we hope to be. But may our lives be so completely consumed in your love, in your grace the truth that you've revealed and the salvation that you've provided that we are found in you Lord Jesus that we are dead and our lives are hidden with Christ in God 
pray that you would reveal yourself to us in greater measure, Lord. That you would deepen our love, that you would forgive us, Lord, for our shallowness. That you'd forgive us for where we justify petty sins. Please be near us tonight. I pray as we sing this song, you would just meet with each of us, Lord. Please fill this place, fill our hearts. Let us leave here in awe of you. We ask in Jesus' name.